Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Thank you to Ezra Klein for podcasting, for to Jeffrey Geld for engineering, and to me for stepping into guest host today. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is another AMA episode. I'm joined today by Roger Karma, our steadfast researcher and all-around um, jack-of-all book trades. Um, Roger, thank you for being here and doing this. Happy to be here, Ezra. You ready for some tough questions? Let's do it. And I, I want to note for the audience here that I do not know which questions are coming. Roger has been fully um, in charge of finding these, so I am... Hearing these and responding to them fresh, as opposed to having a, a tightly planned out. So, uh, if a bunch of my answers don't make any sense, that is going to be why. Yeah, I hope you. I hope you know Jeff was the easy interview. I'm not going to be so nice. <laughs> All right, great. The, so the plan is to start off with some, you know, hard hitting political questions. But actually, the first thing that I wanted to ask was really a, a simple question: just where is your head at right now? You know, with the show, the state of the world, your own life, we're living through a pretty intense moment. So I just wanted to check in on behalf of the audience. Like, how are you doing and what have you been thinking about? Your simple question is, where is my head at with the show, my life and the state of the world? <laughs> hey, man, I told you this wasn't going to be easy. Yeah, that, that, that was a, that's a little broad. Um, on the show, I remember, uh, I don't remember if this was actually in the podcast or not, but I asked uh, Jenny O'Dell how she was feeling. And she said, uh, it changes day to day. And I said, well, how are you feeling today? And she said, it's too early to tell, which I've always liked as a, <laughs> as a way of thinking about this era. Look, it's a bad period. Um, I don't feel great. I don't think most people feel great. The literal place my head is at is trying to figure out how I don't burn out between here and the election. I kept thinking there would be a slowdown coming right? Um, the Trump era was really, really fast. That like came out of the 2016 election. Um, so then we accelerated out of an election, which was already moving pretty quick. Then I had a baby. <laughs> I released a book. Um, I thought like once a book tour was done, there would be like some real opportunity to to decelerate. But COVID hit. Um, and then the George Floyd murder uh, and the protests that, that came out of that. Then it looks like we can go back into coronavirus uh, in the coming weeks. And we're going to have the election heating up in addition to whatever other horrors befall us as a country, a globe, a nation. And I am struck by how much being cut off from you know, being able to go to a restaurant or go to a bar, or go to a show or see friends in a normal context, my work translates much more easily to being at home. 
right? I can I can parent at home and I can work at home, but I'm not that good at resting at home. And so that like my where where my head is at right now is trying to figure out how to make this a little bit more sustainable instead of keeping on thinking that just around the corner, like I can keep sprinting and just around the corner, it's all gonna it's all gonna work out. Yeah, I think that does a good job of level setting. And so I a related question to that from the audience about this moment is from Kevin. And he wanted to know how unique or extraordinary or unprecedented is this moment we're living through right now. You've talked in your book, and I remember the you know debate you had with Yasha Monk about saying like the 1960s were way worse right now. Isn't that crazy? But that was in the before times. So has your answer on that question changed? Yeah, I don't think that's true anymore. I actually wrote a piece about this a couple of weeks ago on Vox where something that people on the show I think have heard me say is my the scenarios I feared were something like you take the social discord and unrest and fracture of the 1960s and layer our current political system on top of them. And we're getting a lot closer to that. Um, we're not quite there yet, right? I mean, the 60s had a series of very high-level political assassinations. They had um, a draft beginning. Uh, you know, we had a, the Vietnam War. So there was more going on that I, I, I think still we're not quite at what the 60s meant. But we are not living through something normal. We are not living through average times plus a little bit more political conflict plus a bit of social media acceleration. I think a lot about how strange it is to be raising a kid who is just becoming really social at a moment when I have to signal to him that he should be afraid of people, right? Like, because he, in some ways, is like a, it's like a, it's like an anchor for me, right? I can, I, I know how abnormal this is, but all he knows is that you're not supposed to touch people, not even necessarily other little kids. And like, that's profoundly sad. Um, like a lot of people, like the only kind of getting out of the house I do is I go on hikes. And even though I don't think this is actually all that important for keeping the spread of coronavirus down, there is this social expectation on a hike that when you pass people, you put on your mask. And so there's this moment as you see other human beings where you armor yourself against them. And so putting aside even all of the politics, right, we're in a profoundly dangerous economic moment. I'm much more concerned about the economy than I think uh, a lot of people seem to be right now. I think that the last month or two is going to be very much a false dawn. Um, I think headline numbers are going to be getting better, but the situation people are actually in as furloughs become layoffs, as the expanded unemployment insurance runs out, um, as coronavirus begins to roar back, I think the situation a lot of people in is going to get worse, even as it looks like the economy is getting better. There's been a decoupling of the economic pain from the economic trajectory, and I think those things are going to converge again. So I'm like, I'm very, very worried about the actual situation we're in. But just being a human being in this moment is tearing at the fabric of how we relate to one another in a way that is so profoundly sad and in a way that I don't think we will know what it is doing to us, what it is doing to our relationships, what it is doing to our children for a long time. Like we are living through a trauma and many of us have to some degree or another gotten a little bit used to it, right? Day to day, we're, we're in a rhythm we can handle. But what it is meant to build this sense of anxiety around each other 
and what it will take to let go of that. If we will be able to let go of that, I don't know. And that's before you then get into the scars of the economic devastation is going to mark on people, the scars and tragedies of people losing family members. I don't think we are anywhere near grappling with the amount of pain we're actually going through. And I say that societally, and I say it frankly personally. I think I think there's going to be a lot of reckoning and a lot of processing to come. And the question is, when will we have an opportunity to do that? Now, for all that, this is certainly not the only generation that will have to go through something like this. I mentioned, you know, if you look at the 20th century and you're just even looking at America here, right? We had war after war after war with huge death counts. I mean, terrible things happened. So we are not the first generation that will have to recover from something profound, but more so than anything else I have lived through here, then that includes very much in my view 9-11. We are going through something extraordinary and unusual that is going to have effects on our psyche that we cannot yet predict. Cheerful opening to this, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's super cheerful. But actually, I think what's what's been interesting, and there were a couple audience questions around this, at the same time that things look grim, you've been doing a lot more utopian thinking these days than I remember you doing in previous years. You just wrote this piece on imagining the nonviolent state. You've had on guests like Rucker Bregman and Mariana Mazzucato and Sajitha Baliga, who are you know big utopian thinkers in many ways. Are you conscious of any shift in your thinking in the past few years around the realm of what is and isn't possible and the importance of utopian thinking even in dark times? I do think there's a shift. And I think the shift has a couple of predicates for me. So one, there's simply a question of time. It isn't that I wasn't interested in some of these issues before, but when there was a more healthy ongoing policy process, when like Congress was doing more, when it was trying to pass things like the Affordable Care Act, I spent more time trying to cover and understand and in certain ways influence those proceedings. And if Congress were doing more right now, I think I would be spending a little bit more time on it too. But but that's not that, that can't be all of it because there have been some big stimulus bills and I've still been been doing this work. So another piece of it for me is when I look back over the past couple of years, past five or six years, one of the central differences to me than was true in the decade before it has been the detonating of boundaries on at the very least a political conversation. Now, I don't think that has meant the detonating of boundaries on what actually happens in American politics. I think for reasons of institutional constraint, for how Congress works, for a bunch of different things, the level of swing in the public conversation is very rarely matched by that same level of swing in what actually happens in legislating and policymaking. So, so there's a bigger difference and distance between what we're talking about and what is going on than there has been at other times. But nevertheless, I think a, a real mistake has been sometimes to not take ideas burbling around the edge of the conversation seriously enough, quickly enough. And so that is something I've been trying not to do again. Um, I've been trying to explore the boundaries more often. And also just trying to open up my own thinking, because I do think there's a lot unsettled. Um, I think there's a lot ideologically changing, and I want to be open to that. I think of journalism as having sort of open and closed variants. There are certain kinds of journalism where you are literally just answering a question. And I think that is a little bit closed, right? At the end of that piece, like at least in your heart, in your mind, you have closed the conversation. 
Now, maybe you haven't really, maybe you're wrong, but 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 that's sort of what you feel like you're doing, right? You know, fact-checking journalism has this quality to it. Donald Trump said X, and is X true or is X a lie? And once you've come to the end of making that judgment, like the case is closed, right? That's what you're trying to do there. And then there's open journalism, right? Where you're exploring something and you're not ending a conversation. You're not necessarily coming to the right answer. You're opening a conversation. And I would say a lot more of my work has been drifting in that direction. And then conversations, I think, just by their nature, people listening to this podcast know me through this podcast, they're just a little bit more open. I think more of my writing has this answering quality than my interviewing does. Like if you read Why We're Polarized, in my head, I think that opens a lot of conversations and does not is not able to come to answers on some of its questions, certainly about how to fix the situation we're in. But I think if, I think it is a fair read of the book to say that I think I have an explanation for polarization that is pretty firm. And I, you know, it can use some filling in in some places. There's stuff I could have talked more about, but it it, it more or less answers a question, at least for me. Whereas I think that a lot of what I'm doing here is about opening conversations, literally being in conversation. And so I think that simply moving more into the podcast format has pushed me more towards that sort of exploratory mode, at least when I'm doing podcasts, whereas the more I'm writing, the more sometimes things feel a little bit more like, okay, like we've narrowed down a question. We're trying to actually answer it, you know, find the piece of information, like find the right studies so that we can come away with some usable model of the world. To ground this a little more, um, this idea of sort of utopian thinking. So Maria and a lot of others have asked a version of this question. Uh, Let's say we wake up on January 20th, 2021, with Joe Biden as president, a solidly Democratic House, and 51 Democratic seats in the Senate. Besides abolishing the filibuster, I had to add that part, what should the Biden administration prioritize as its first big legislative push? You you talked about this a bit with Paul Krugman in December, and your answer then was a sort of big, clean energy investment. But a lot has changed since then. So I'm wondering where you stand now. Yeah. So one, I, I don't think you just say, aside from abolishing the filibuster, I, I take what you're doing, because obviously I'm going to then say abolishing the filibuster. But I do just want to say for the record that if Democrats have 51 votes in the Senate, they have very little, right? That gives them the capacity to do one budget reconciliation bill a year. That's it. That's all they're going to really be able to pass, because they're not going to get Republican cooperation. So I hope Democrats don't think <laughs> that will work. Um, that said, assuming they did abolish the filibuster, so my first thing, like if if I were elected president with majorities from my party, whatever party that may be, my first thing would be a package of proposals meant to make legislating work, right? I think you need to make America more small d democratic in order to make the rest of the system functional. And so what I wish anybody would do before they do anything else is fix the policymaking system such that policy can then be made. And I know this is an answer that many people are boring, but but there's a lot, like I, I cannot emphasize it enough because if you don't do it, then it doesn't matter what fantasy football we play about should you do climate change or coronavirus or healthcare or you know universal basic wealth to close some of the racial wealth gap first. You're not gonna get probably any of them done and certainly you're not gonna get more than one of them done. And so you're screwed particularly because Joe Biden or whoever is elected president um, in 2020 
uh, clean Donald Trump for that matter, is probably going to be facing uh, both a, a resurgent coronavirus, but also a pretty wrecked economy still. And there's going to be a need for more stimulus. Um, Democrats have not taken my advice to demand automatic stabilizers such that, say, the extended unemployment insurance is tied to the unemployment rate. And so they're going to be coming in and having to fight over just remobilizing the economy. And that's going to really, really tear into any long-term goals they have. Like people like really have to remember that Obama had 60 votes for about nine months in the Senate. Then he had 59, at least for his first two years. Biden is not going to have anything that looks like that, or at least I don't think he will. Um, so first, I would do democracy reform. And there are a lot of good ideas for us out there. The National Academy of Sciences just released a report um, Daniel Allen, who's been on the show, was one of the lead authors of that report. They had a lot of good ideas for how to make voting rights more secure. They had a lot of good ideas for how to reform Congress. There's plenty out there, but 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 that's where I would start. And then you can talk about what would you do next. But what you need to create is a situation in which you can do things next. If you do not have a structure in which you can make policy, then burning all of your capital failing to make policy is just a shit strategy. And at some, at some point, Democrats or Republicans or somebody is going to have to care more about the actual problems Americans are facing and the world is facing and care more about the consequences of our inability to solve them than they do about niceties and traditions of the Senate that no longer play anything like the role that they were originally intended to play. Like the the status quo bias on how Congress works, probably given how far the workings of Congress are from their intentions compared to the lack of urgency, or at least the revealed lack of urgency about the problems we actually face, is in my view like genuinely immoral. And people need to take it seriously. It is not boring to say focus on the policymaking process first. It is necessary. So what do you do next? I would do climate change still. Um, I do climate change for a couple of reasons. One is I think the right way to do some kind of broader Green New Deal, and I'm not saying there that I would include everything in it that some of the Green New Deal folks say. I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of like, could you do the Green New Deal and say Medicare for all simultaneously? But um, but hopefully we'll explore that on a on a future podcast. But but speaking here about the Green New Deal more specifically in a lot of its climate change and, and clean energy dimensions, I think that simultaneously is addressing the biggest and most predictable problem we face. If done correctly, it could be a huge economic mobilization package, and it could be done in ways that have really positive impacts on not just issue, uh, not just racial issues in our economy, but also, and this is really, really, really important, on environmental justice issues. Um, so for instance, African-Americans are much more likely to live in heavily polluted areas or areas that are downstream from a lot of, say, toxic metals. And that has tremendous effects on all kinds of things that we care about for uh, long-term health and thriving and safety and security and happiness. And so I think that if you really took things like pollution seriously from the outset, you would have a very, very big effect. And Every other issue we need to face matters tremendously too, but climate change is, I think, quite unique in that it just gets tremendously harder every year you don't deal with it. Whereas the early childhood education, which in many ways is, I think, the highest economic return thing we could do, and I like care about it deeply and, and believe very strongly that we need to do it, 
If you do early childhood education in 2024 rather than 2021, it is true that three years worth of kids have lost three years worth of early childhood education that they might have otherwise gotten, or at least the ones who would have benefited from the program who don't have access right now. But it didn't become impossible to solve the early childhood education problem. Whereas at some point, it becomes functionally impossible to do anything but geoengineering about climate change to keep temperature increases below two degrees Celsius. And we're not that far from that point. So wasting time puts us behind the eight ball there in a way that it just doesn't on healthcare or other things. So you might not remember this because it was in the before times, but you actually published a book earlier this year called Why We're Polarized. That Isn't that a, a fucking trip? <laughs> <laughs> um, and we got a couple questions around this. So the the sort of synthesizing question is, in your view, what were the best critiques of the book and why? And did any of them change the way you thought about your own book? It's a good question. Um so one thing that I don't know I think is the best critique, but it was common in the in some of the reviews, and I wish I had just spent more time on it, was the question of whether the polarization and sorting dynamics I described in the book are the are a consequence of economic inequality. And one of the things about the book that is maybe a, a choice I made that I should have said a little bit more clearly is I only put things in the book that I thought I could really prove. And so the book is not, except for a little bit at the end and maybe even not there, it's not very normative. Like there's a way of writing a book that's like, this is what I think is true about the world or what I would like to be true about the world. And I'm going to try to argue that, you know, you should believe it too. And I, I was very like, this is my first book and I wanted it to be very grounded. And so there are things where I think something might be true, but I can't really prove it. And 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 they they didn't go into the book. Inequality and polarization is something where I am not sure that I buy the argument. I think I lean against it being true, that inequality is a huge driver of political polarization, which is not to say, very, I want to say this very clearly, not to say that economic inequality is not a huge problem, not to say that it is not toxic for our politics, but I define polarization as something quite specific in the book, and I'm not sure, like not every problem is a polarization problem. There can just be other problems. You can have a you can have a very depolarized political system that is incredibly oligarchic. You can have a very depolarized political system that is egalitarian, right? These things can operate on different axes. So I wish I had just done a little bit more of a literature review there, and I think it's something that I'm going to try to do in the coming months. Um, I will say that one of my sadnesses about the book, I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago that when I published it, I imagined it would start off a conversation, and it did, and like I'm grateful for I'm really grateful it came out when it did and it got to have its moment in the sun, right? And 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 people got to hear it and, and you know, like a, a, it went better than I had frankly hoped it would in a lot of ways. But my intention was that when the tour calmed down and I had a second to think, I was going to sort of go through the critiques and begin writing up like next steps in the conversation that I wanted to take, right? So like begin answering things that I thought were interesting, begin arguing with things that I thought were wrongheaded. And the descendants of coronavirus just stopped that, right? Like my my work moved to coronavirus, moved from there to, to all the places it has gone, it's moving into the election. And so I, I had a real desire 
to be following up on the book and to be like building more of a conversation around it that I just have not been able to follow up on. And and maybe I will be. Um, I think some of the things that have been happening are really interesting from the perspective of the book. I think by the time this comes out, I'll have published a piece on polarization, identity politics, and and the sort of racial uh coalitions that have emerged around the aftermath of George Floyd's death. I think it's a real place where you can see in some ways the upside of polarization and identity politics, and you can see some of the arguments against them disproven. So uh, that that should be out by now. I'm very interested in Joe Biden and the way he is dealing with this, which is basically his staying out of the way of the cameras. Um, not that he's, it's not literally true that Joe Biden never does an interview, but he does not go out of his way to make news. And what Biden is basically doing is letting Trump like be the polarizing presence and let Trump sort of be the mobilization push to the Democratic Party and sort of do himself a lot of damage. Joe Biden, I think, is operating more aggressively than I've ever seen a candidate operate by the old maxim that when your opponent is drowning, don't throw them a lifeline. Like he's just staying out of the way. And from the perspective of polarization, it's actually something these theories would argue is a good idea that so much of polarization comes from negative partisanship. So much of the power of what is happening comes from negative partisanship. If you, the more you do to activate your own side, the more negative partisanship you are going to arouse. Right. There's a like every action has an equal and sometimes more than opposite reaction. I just was looking at a poll this morning and it showed, and I'm sorry because I'm going to do these numbers from memory. Uh, I didn't write them down, but because uh, I didn't know I'd be using them on this podcast. But among people voting for Joe Biden, something like 35% say their vote is primarily a vote for Joe Biden and 60 some percent say their vote is primarily against Donald Trump. And among people voting for Donald Trump, it's like the reverse. 70% say it's a vote for Donald Trump and 30% say it's a vote for Joe Biden. I'm sorry, uh, a vote against Joe Biden. And so what's so interesting about that to me is it, it's very clear that Donald Trump is much more mobilizing to the Democratic base than Joe Biden is. And in some way, you would think of that as a bad strategy, but Biden is up by nine points. Nine. It's crazy. He's up in polling averages. He's above 50%. Hillary Clinton did not have this kind of a lead. She had way more undecided. And so there's something about the way he's playing this, which it very much sort of offends the press. Um, it offends political junkies. Like we like people who are interesting, making news, right? Doing interviews, like getting in the fight. But it seems to be working. And so there's, I think, just like interesting lessons to take from that and, and to explore. So I would like to be continuing the conversation in a couple of different directions. I'd like to write more about inequality um, and polarization, but it has just been hard to find the time. Is there anything that has happened either with coronavirus or with public opinion around George Floyd's killing and the subsequent protests that's genuinely surprised you given sort of the position and the thesis of the book? Let me separate the two. So coronavirus, I don't know how surprised I, because it is such an out of sample thing to have happen. I don't even know what I would have expected. So I'm sort of trying to put myself back in the position of making predictions about what a pandemic like this would do. Donald Trump is such a disaster of a person to have in the Oval Office during a crisis like this that I'm not even sure what we can say structurally from him. So we've seen a huge like polarization dynamic breakout among masks, around social distancing, around a lot of things you might think would not actually be polarizing. 
But if it wasn't Donald Trump in office, instead it was um, Marco Rubio, or it was Jeb Bush, or it was you know any of a number of Republicans who took this more seriously, Mitt Romney, if it was Mitt Romney's second term this was happening in, I don't know that that would have happened. So I, I don't want to say that everything that has happened um, around polarization coronavirus is necessary. I think that in many cases, Donald Trump made decisions that then the Republican Party basically had to find a way to rationalize. Donald Trump doesn't wear masks, so nor do they. But if he did, would they? I think probably, right? I, I don't know that there's something intrinsic to Republicans who are also older and in many cases more vulnerable to coronavirus that would have made them um, so resistant to taking it seriously, at least in some places like Florida. So coronavirus, it just has very distinctive Trump dimensions to it that I don't know how to separate. But it's sad um, that we've responded to it so poorly. And something that I think is surprising about the Republican Party right now is I think they are potentially digging their own grave on their attitude towards stimulus. And I don't really, on some level, that speaks to ideology within the conservative movement carrying more weight than sometimes we give it credit for, maybe than I give it credit for. And I think I'm actually more open to ideology and principles motivating conservatism than a, than a lot of people on the liberal side of things are. But but nevertheless, what Republicans should be doing right now from a pure self-interest standpoint is taking advantage of the Democratic Congress's willingness to spend functionally unlimited trillions of dollars to do state and local aid, um, to do like all kinds of jobs programs. Like The better the economy is in November, the better Republicans are going to do. And the fact that they are actually standing in the way of their own, what could be their own political salvation is very striking to me. I mean, they've agreed to things, but they are foot dragging on it and they have not agreed to an extension of the UI past July 31st. They have not passed a state and local aid package. Like there is no urgency on the Republican side to, to build this economy back up. I'm genuinely surprised by that. I think that it is such an incredible violation of their own self-interest that you have to begin, like you, you have to actually take seriously that they have a pretty deep attachment to an ideology that low stimulus more so than I thought they did. I thought more of that was instrumental in the way they operated with Obama than it appears to have been, or at least like appears to have become because Republicans, I think, were actually pretty open to stimulus in the Bush era. They didn't, they clearly didn't give a shit about deficits, didn't for most of the Trump era either. But there's something about this that um, seems to have like gone a little too far for them. And they're putting themselves at risk to, to make that clear. Um, on George Floyd, uh, I think I'll direct people to this piece I wrote, but we are seeing a acceleration of racial liberalism among white Democrats that is one of the fastest polling changes uh, uh, on a core attitude that we've ever seen in American politics. And like that's a pretty profound thing. Um, if you look at attitudes on structural racism, uh, police brutality, the amount of discrimination African-Americans face in daily life, and you look at their change, not just from the 90s to today, but even from 2008 to today, it is astonishing. Um, for this piece, I was looking uh, you know, at, at some of these numbers, and, and just as one example, in 94, it was something like 37% of Democrats and 25% or 29% of Republicans said that discrimination was the key reason African-Americans had trouble getting ahead in America. In 2017, that had gone to something like 
70% of Democrats and fallen to 14% of Republicans. So like there's an incredible increase. And so now when you look at the, the George Floyd numbers, you see this huge difference between the right and the left on this. But but even, by the way, the right is becoming more open to saying police brutality is an issue, discrimination is an issue. They are much more racially conservative than than the left is, but but there's really been a big shift on this. And so I have sort of more and more come to the view that the racial polarization and the way in which the Democratic Party uses its political identity as a sort of like a, a, a way to unite sort of racial identities and ideological identities and geographic identities can actually be a really powerful force for justice and a powerful force for addressing things that weren't being addressed. Now, whether our political system will be able to solve those things, um, I think some pessimism is warranted, but that's better than them being suppressed from the very outset. And so you actually never even get to have the conversation at all. Um, this is a necessary first step to getting anything actually done on them. So I'm a little bit more optimistic about what we're seeing there than I would have anticipated being if you had just described to me that there'd be this situation, protests, potentially um, riots where we're you know, there was looting and, and 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 fires being set. What we've seen in terms of the polling on that kind of thing in the past is very negative. And in this case, uh, I think there's been a lot more willingness to look at the broader issue and take seriously where that anger is coming from. Awesome. So Joel, I think, had a really interesting question about sort of one axis that doesn't get as much attention in the book, which he asks, how much of today's political conflict do you think is caused by the anxiety and the tension around the generational transfer of social control from boomers to millennials? And I, and I would extend that to say sort of the generational transfer of power more generally. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So we are more, we are seeing levels of age polarization that are really unusual. It just isn't the case in past generations that the young were this different than the old. I mean, I know people have heard that line, right? That if you're not a liberal when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're old, you have no brain. But it, it didn't used to look like this at all. So maybe. And certainly generational enmity is becoming more of an articulated axis of conflict in American politics, right? That's what OK Boomer fundamentally is. Uh, so there's like, there, there are things happening there. My read of it is that the bigger axis of conflict remains racial. And to the extent that like, there's a lot of conflict between the young and the old, it is taking place primarily around the axis that the young are much more racially liberal, not just economically liberal, which is also true, but, but, but racially progressive, much more committed to a diverse society, much more interested in what it means to have a diverse society, what decisions that means, what should be considered acceptable boundaries on speech, on sort of ideas that are brought into the mainstream. And like that, that is where people are feeling the instability, right? That there's like a real, so I, I think it is a convergence of issues around that, but but it speaks to, you know, a different generation, a much more diverse generation having a lot more power. I mean, something I do argue in the book is that if you look at the young, like they're just a much more diverse generation. We are a much more diverse generation. We are a much more secular generation, which I think is really underplayed in its potency here. And around that, we are also more liberal or more left, depending on how you want to read it. And um, and I think all of that matters. I think those are the ways that conflict expresses itself, though, more, at least more generally than through age itself. I don't think when people think about this, the way they think about it is like, I'm losing this country to young people. I think they think about it like, 
this country is being taken over by socialists. This country is changing and isn't becoming, you know, it's not going to be white or it's not going to be Christian. I think the way people experience it is not young versus old, but different versus same. And because like people have young people in their family, you know, there's more of a recognition that they're connected to the young than they're connected to, to outgroups. So I don't think the young and particularly for older Americans, I don't think the young tend to be an outgroup in the same way, though, of course, there are moments that it happens. Um, but it connects to all these other things. So there's a sort of uh, convergence of conflict. I want to sort of move us into uh, a group of questions that honestly were the ones that the audience, I think, had the most and felt really strongly about. There were a bunch of questions that we got that sort of all centered around the basic theme of how the hell does Ezra consume so much damn information? Um, and uh, I, there are a bunch of questions on this about your reading habits and productivity habits and things like that. So I guess I want to ask a couple questions on this. But to start off, I really love this question from Austin because I continue to wonder the same thing. He asks, from the references you make in your interviews, one would think you've read every serious work of poli-sci, psychology, history, and economics over the past 20 years with a smattering of philosophy. You've also done a recent a recent spate of shows on religion and theology, regularly feature novelists and poets, and occasionally even sneak in a neuroscientist and theoretical physicist. How do you decide what topics or books warrant your attention? Ooh, so, um, so one thing I should say is that particularly from the show's perspective, some of the answers you. So some of the people should know that like uh, Roger does a huge amount of, of of reading here too. And it's part of why we're I'm able to do shows on as many topics as 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 I do. So I don't want this to to come off as all me. Um because it's very much not. You were also running this you were also running this ship a long time before I got here. <laughs> well that's uh, fair enough. Um but but more poorly. Let me try to answer this, but it's I don't know because it's weird to me I experience it at least as much in terms of all the reading I'm not getting done and the books I've not been able to get through. But I really do. First, the podcast is a forcing mechanism for me to do the reading. It just is. And I do a lot less reading of the news and a lot less reading of social media since starting this show. And I really do try to spend an hour, two hours a day just reading books and you'd be surprised how much that adds up. It doesn't go as quickly as I wish it would. Um, I think I've become a faster reader over time, but I know people who are truly fast readers. Like Iglesias is a truly fast reader, or like Tyler Cowen is like a ridiculously fast reader. And, and I don't think I have that capacity, and I'm not a good skimmer. So I don't tend to skim. Um, so everything just kind of it is just making time for it. And I'm, you know, and I do just try to make time for it. Um uh, one nice thing about being on the West Coast is that uh, my most of my colleagues are on the East Coast, so meetings all have to happen with me in the morning. And after like 2 p.m., nobody wants to meet with me. And that often means that's time I can use to, to, to do reading. Um, so one, I really try to do the reading. And I think that you would be surprised how big the returns are to even limited effort there. So like I just did a, a conversation for just an interview for uh, a piece I'm doing with a political scientist. And I had read one of her papers before I talked to her. And it took me like 35 minutes to read the paper. And she was like so surprised that I had read the paper <laughs> and so grateful. And so, and I feel like that's actually true often that if everybody is basically doing none of the reading and so you do 10% of the reading you should do, you look great. And, um, and, and, and really seem like, and, and the, the returns just be, come amplified because you begin to be able to connect things to other things. And so that's what, that's one piece. Um, 
it really is just like raw making the time for it. And I don't buy a lot of the people who say you can't make the time. Like I just don't watch much TV. Like I just don't. Um, and time other people spend doing that, I spend reading. Uh, I try to staff of social media. Like that is reading time. Um, you know, back when I come into journalism and there was like less stuff that you could like read every second, like people just did read and discuss more books. And I've tried to move myself a little bit back to that because I find it more generative. The other thing, and I think there was going to be an episode coming out either before or after the show with Nick Carr that's going to touch on this pretty or, or speak to this pretty directly. But I think I have gotten better at reading. And this is the part I'm more comfortable talking about because I think a lot of like, I don't want to sit and be like, I, I don't read everything and there's plenty of stuff I'm failing to do the right amount of work on. But one thing that I've come to understand over the past couple of years is that what I need to do is not read for 20 minutes at a time, but I need to read for at least an hour. And that the returns to that are not like 3x reading for 20 minutes, but 10 or 15 times reading for 20 minutes because I get into a state that is more, I mean, it turns out people call this deep reading, which I didn't know, but is more associational, is more creative. I've come to really honor the idea that what is happening when I read a book is often not about the book. It is about my interaction with the book. So just knowing what a book says or even reading, I mean, even like Roger will create these like great briefings on, 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 on books. But like, as you know, I try to like, I try to read a big part of them even so, because there's just something that will happen for me if if I am engaging and spending time in the author's mind, that if you just download the idea matrix-like into my brain, it won't happen. Nick Carr writes about how the connections are the self, right? The connections we draw are actually our mental landscape. And so it's really the process of being in it long enough to draw connections that gives me a distinct take on it. Like, I, I was happy, for instance, with how the Ross Douthat conversation came out a couple weeks ago. And if people haven't listened to it, I, I urge you to do so. And one of the reasons I think it worked is that like I really did read the book and it didn't take forever. I mean, his book is a is a good read. It's an easy read. But if you had just told me what he was arguing, I would not have had the set of questions and associations with it and like counter arguments that I had actually doing it. So I don't really think there's like an answer here aside from you need to put in the time and you need to make enough time that it actually like you're getting into that deep reading space. Because I think the thing that people are hearing in that is not that I've like, quote unquote, done a lot of reading, but that I've integrated enough of the reading that I can sort of use it pretty fast. And that's coming from those moments. Like I sit down, I make a cup of tea, I take out a book and I always read with a, um, a notebook and a pen with me. And I just like, I take notes on my Kindle and I jot notes down on my pad. And if I have an idea for something I need to look up, this is, I think, really important, actually. If I have an idea, you will get while you are reading an idea like, I should look that up or something from your to-do list will pop into your mind. You're like, oh, I should go order the thing or make the call or whatever. And I just write all that down on my pad. I don't stop reading because like those are all like you have to get those things out of your head. But if you stop, you are not going to be able to come back into the book. Like you are trying to break through the hard, slow work of like getting into that deep reading space and you just have to sit with it and like not let yourself like get up out of the chair. And I think that's what I've gotten a lot better at over the past couple of years. So the returns of my reading have just gone way up. I will be the first one to say that I, I can attest to this being true simply by the fact that there will be times when you only have a few hours to read a book that that I've read already. And then 
you will come up with these questions that I'm just like, Ezra, this is not in the book. Like, where did you even get this? And it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a really fun thing to watch. And I, I, I this is actually helping me understand uh, why that actually happens. Um, so I want to, so that kind of gives me a broad overview and gives everyone a broad overview of sort of your approach to reading and your attention. But there was a specific question um, from Sam who, that I thought was really important, which had to do with sort of how you do deep dives into different topics. She asks, Ezra, you often say on the show, I've been studying X lately. I was curious if you could speak to what your process is like, what that studying entails. And I will just add here, you, you just mentioned that you read a paper and then talked to the person who wrote it. And like how much of that studying, when you really say, I want to de- dive deep into a topic like climate change or restorative justice or Jesuit theology, like what does that, what is the first thing you do? Do you sit down with Google? Do you try to find books? Do you talk to people? Like what does that studying process look like? So it, it depends a little bit on is it self-directed or podcast-directed or article-directed? So a bunch of things come out of the show, right? Um, you mentioned Jesuit theology. Like, I was interviewing Cyrus Habib, and I asked him to give me a list of books that he had read that it influenced him. And like that was sort of the way I began to structure that. And then weirdly, a bunch of other things began to connect. Like I, I, I read Diane Pasulka's book on UFOs, and she's a religion scholar who studied Catholicism. And like the end of that book on UFOs actually takes place in the Vatican itself. So, you know, and then Ross's work is also on Catholicism. So all of a sudden things began connecting that I would never have expected to connect. But it like it created a sense that I understood the topic, which I don't, by the way. I don't understand Jesuit theology. I don't know that much about Catholicism. Catholicism. But, you know, I'd done um, enough reading that I could ask a couple intelligent or semi-intelligent questions. So one piece is like letting things take me where they need to take me. Um, and the show is just amazing for that. Like, it's why I like doing the show so much. I, I will say one thing that's weird about doing this podcast, and I almost hesitate to um, say this on air, but I learn nothing almost from doing the show itself, from the actual recording of the show, because I cannot absorb anything happening while we are in the conversation. Like, I, I Nick Carr's book actually helped me figure out maybe what's going on here because he's got this whole thing on the difficulty of putting of moving things from short term memory into long term memory, but like the work of actually keeping the conversation on track, trying to hear what just got said and figure out where to go next. I finish, and I mean, you know this because we have to work on heads and decks together. And like five days later, I remember nothing that happened during the podcast. And so ones that I really like, I have to re-listen to so I can absorb them. Uh, I like literally just like have to remember, I thought that was cool when it was happening. I need to go back and see what we talked about because like it is gone. So for me, all the learning for the show happens in the reading. Like it's all that engagement beforehand and then, you know, if I felt like the product was really good, I'll sometimes go back and listen to it myself so, like, I can figure out what it is we talked about. But, like, what happens, like, it's like a second. dream. Can I, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. I have to, I have to call you out on this because I, I help a lot with the descriptions for the podcast. And so many times I have just listened to it. I will put in descriptors of, like, what you and the other person talked about. And you'll double the list. And you listened to the podcast like three weeks ago. So are, are you, I'm oh, just but, you know, are The you... way I do that is that, remember, I have a questions document. Mm, okay. 
So I always go back to my questions document and I use that to write the description. <laughs> That's a good idea. I have a prep document and I use a, I use a prep document to write the description always because <laughs> I know what I got. I know what I know what we asked. Um, but like you know, I had to re-listen. I really liked the Douthat and Habib conversations, and I re-listened to both of them after because I had just forgotten like a lot of what was in them, <laughs> even though I was like, I, I know I thought that was interesting. Um, so anyway, we have a different experience of doing those descriptions maybe. So there's that. And then there's like the question of, uh, I want to explore something in a piece. And like, that's a little bit more straightforward. I will like email experts who seem to be relevant to what I'm writing about and ask them for what to read, uh, ask them who else I should talk to. And then there's a question of like, I'm just getting into something myself. And yeah, like I search out books. I, I don't think I have, I probably other people have like really well-defined um, search processes, but I don't. When I'm interested in something, I just literally go to Amazon or some other bookseller um, and search it in, or I go to Google Scholar. And if I'm looking for papers, I'll often go to Google Scholar and look for the most cited papers around an issue and begin there and like really, really usually try to begin with meta-analyses if I can, um, if it's that kind of issue. Um, but I don't have like a like like anything secret. The podcast is really where a lot of it is structured. Um, I will and you're part of this, so you know this. You know, if I want to explore something, oftentimes my forcing mechanism is I'll set it up as podcasts. And sometimes if I don't know what the thing is, I will like come to you and say, like, can you help? You know, can we begin to source guests on this issue? So, you know, a good example of this is a climate change series. It took us, I mean, people who listened um, don't know this, but it took us fucking forever to come up with that list. And we went through like 10 iterations of it because trying to figure out what it was we needed to like actually sequence what were the things we were going to do and not going to do was really, really hard um, because like I didn't know and there wasn't really a way to do it without just like doing a lot of the work piece by piece. So I don't know, maybe maybe there's more method to what feels like madness than I think there is. But um, oftentimes I feel like it's just like a trial and error. This book is bad. Unfortunately, try another one. Like this book is great. Follow the follow the footnotes, see what else the author has done, bring them on the podcast, that kind of thing. Another fairly common question that we got on this topic was basically boiled down, do you read for fun? And I and an, another one that um, someone else mentioned was, you know, and if so, how do you distinguish between reading for fun and reading for work? And I could relate to this question a lot because I think when you do a podcast that's as varied as this one, or do your work is just as varied as this one, it's sometimes hard to not have your sort of work mind on when you're any doing anything that you read for anything really that you read. So I'm just wondering if there's one, do you read for fun? And two, is there any way you kind of distinguish between that reading and reading for work? I'm really struggling with this question right now. I just read a. I had the good fortune to read an early copy of Anne Helm Peterson's book on millennial burnout. I don't think she would object to me saying this. And there's a, a great chapter on the broken relationship to leisure, the way um, it's become very common to turn the things you enjoy into work or into some kind of hustle. And I was reading that. I was like, oh no. <laughs> and reading is like really big in that for me. Now I enjoy the podcast and a lot of things we read for it are really fun to read for it. So that's great. But the amount we need to read for it is pretty intimidating. Um, and I'm always like, again, like my experience of it is that I'm often not finishing the books in time, not getting as much done, not reading supplementary materials I wanted to read. So like my experience of it is usually feeling behind and feeling a little bit unprepared walking in. 
even though you know it usually turns out okay. The thing I do to read for fun is I have subscriptions to Marvel Unlimited, and then like DC has a new app that's kind of like this, which are these like online all you can eat buffet comic subscriptions. And though, like, I read those for fun, right? Those are really like a fun form of reading for me, but I have a lot of trouble reading for fun. And I also, and this is a little bit stranger, but I have trouble finding books that I find fun. I was actually, maybe, maybe I'll actually ask this of the, the audience because I was going to do it on Twitter. And then I was like, eh, maybe I don't want to engage on Twitter. <laughs> but um, I was thinking that I'm starting to see like, what is the kind of book I find fun? And it's like really well, like well-written. Um, it's not that heavy in what it's dealing with, right? It's not like a book about death. <laughs> and then it has like a sort of interesting, like fun, unusual, distinct premise. So like, I loved this. I loved N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became. I, I think the book is called, what was it called? Where do we go from here? But it's this book about kids who spontaneously combust in their nannies. Like, I thought that book was great. Um, I love Cavalier and Clay. Um, I've been trying to think about like, what are the books that I actually find fun? And it has this sort of like, I don't want to exactly call it a lightness of topic because some of the themes here are real. Like these books deal with issues of like class and, you know, um, Cavalier and Clay has a lot about the Holocaust in it. But, you know, they they have a, a joy to them. So anyway, if people hear that and like have some good recommendations for me, uh, I would be I would be grateful for them. But yeah, I in, in some ways I think my relationship to leisure has been kind of broken, and I think it's gotten as I kind of said in your the first question you asked me, it's gotten a lot worse during coronavirus. Um, things I used to do that were restful for me are gone. You know, like I used to go. This I think will sound weird to people, but I used to go to a lot of shows. This will sound less weird. Like I used to go meet friends at a bar, right? This gets harder when you have a kid and it did get harder for me, but then you just stop being able to do it really at all. And I've not been able to replace it. And so I remember when I joined the Washington Post, I used to, lo I used to love to cook. Now I don't do quite as um, difficult cooking anymore. But I talked my way into, my, I talked my way into writing a food column, a food policy column over there. And then like I started with some friends, like this like little food blog. And I just immediately turned something that I loved. It was one of my few true hobbies into a into a side hustle. And it's something I'm trying to stop doing, but I don't exactly know how. Um it's definitely it's it's weird to be like, I need to work on leisure. And I recognize, you know, like full disclaimers about privilege and so on, but it's a, you know, it's a it's a thing. It is I find it as a parent. Um, during a pandemic with a busy job, just hard to rest. And like that does over time take a toll and over time it's taken one on me and it's something that I'm working on, which may even in that language show the problem. Let's talk a little bit about other things. I think that does it for the sort of productivity reading section uh, of what we wanted to focus on, although we really appreciate all the, all the great questions there. Um, there was this question we got from Benedict that I thought was just fascinating given uh, your recent conversation with Ralph Douthat and Cyrus Habib um, that I thought also fits in really well with what the show, where the show is going right now. And But he asks, if you were only intellectually accountable to beauty and not truth, what religion or religions would you choose to believe in? What <laughs> views present the most compellingly beautiful vision of the world, in your opinion? Well, that's interesting. 
if I was only accountable to beauty and not truth? So one, I'm not sure I know. Um, I have not studied enough of the religions in depth to be sure I know which one I think has the most beautiful view of the world. Ooh, I'm going to think about this out loud for a second. I don't think I have an answer to that, to, to be honest, or at least not one that I'm comfortable like shooting from the hip on. You know, I something that is actually connected to to thinking about rest is I've been <laughs> to also connect back to some other questions. I've been trying to understand and study the Sabbath more recently. Um, I think there's something in the philosophy of the Sabbath, um, the Jew or the Jewish Shabbat, uh, that speaks very deeply to rest and can be important in this era. And so I think there are parts of Judaism that are really beautiful. And I think that there's a tendency to find one's own tradition beautiful. And I share that. Um, I don't find everything about it beautiful. And in particular, I have a lot of trouble with the Old Testament, which has a little bit of a lot of retribution in it. So there are parts of Judaism that I struggle with uh, pretty deeply. But there are parts of it that I find absolutely lovely. Um, and I feel that way about Christianity. Uh, I don't know enough about the different forms of it. Although I will say that my gut is if this was if if I really spent time on this, I think I'd probably end up being a Quaker. Everything I've ever read about the Quakers, if I um it's just like I I love the philosophies they've pushed into the world. I love the way their rituals work. Um and to something that has been talked about on the show, I do think at least somewhat about what is it that your religion, your spirituality, your framework seems to do for you. And the Quakers, I think, have a pretty good record of it pushing them in directions that are honorable, that are ethical, and that give them some strength to stand against the prevailing winds of a culture when that culture has become immoral. Now, I am not enough of an expert on Quakers to truly know if that is true. So maybe I've just fucked that up and Quakers have like a terrible sordid history that I don't know that much about. And, um, you know, I guess I, and, and, you know, please don't cancel me, but that is my, um, you know, kind of glossed, um, instinctual reaction to that question. There seems to be a lot of, a lot, a lot of beauty in Quakerdom. Are there any Eastern religions? You mentioned Buddhism a lot on the show that appeal to you from, a aesthetic perspective? Yeah, I think so. But I think they appeal to me a little bit more from a truth perspective, or at least like the parts of Buddhism that I have received. I think it's just more true. One thing I just, this will not surprise anybody who listens to the show. Like one of my first questions about a religion, honestly, is how do you treat the poor and how do you treat animals? And if your religion isn't leading, if its precepts are not clear enough on both of those things. So I think that a lot of the Western religions, if you read them, they are pretty good on the poor and tend to be pretty bad on animals. I appreciate that some of the Eastern religions have a more have a have a different approach, uh, you know, particularly on animals. And so those two things are important to, to me, right? How do you how do you how do you think about suffering and how seriously do you take the suffering of other creatures? Like that just that's one of the things to me that a spiritual framework should do. But one thing that I'm a little bit careful with when I talk about the Eastern religions is they are different um, in their initial variants and in the way they are practiced where they come from. What we have received in the West on Buddhism and particularly sort of Northern California Buddhism, um, which is something that I'm a little bit more familiar with, is different. I mean, Zen is a very severe 
practice in some of its initial incarnations, there is a lot more theology in Buddhism than is given credit for in the West, where it's often treated as a rationalist or it's like religion or it's spirituality without religion or something. That's really not true. Um, there's a lot of Hinduism in it. There's a lot of so I'm a little bit careful on that. Um, I have done a lot of studying of these for my own purposes, but like my own purposes have more to do with like things that I'm working on in my life. And so I'm looking at literature that is tuned to that more than I'm looking at them in their like the beauty of their religious dimensions, um, or at least their their sort of initial religious incarnations. So I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little careful on that just because I think there's pretty big differences in how things are translated and imported. And I want to be careful not to misstate them too profoundly. We had a lot of kind of shorter questions. How would you feel about doing a lightning round? Let's do it. All right. Jeff helped me with this one as well. So I have to give a shout out to him, our wonderful audio wizard. All right, here it goes. First, what's your favorite non-Vox podcast? Ooh, my favorite non-Vox podcast. Oh, favorite is tough. Um, I think my favorite non-Vox podcast, I'm going to name two, which I know is cheating, but I love Still Processing at the New York Times, which is um, Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris's Culture and American Society podcast. Uh, I would just listen to them talk about anything. And I love really well done cultural commentary. So I just, I really, really enjoy their show. And then I've always been a huge fan of Anna Sale's Death, Sex and Money, which is on WNYC. And just that, that is a show that has moments in it that I think are really breathtaking. And she's able to host kinds of conversations that I think are really rare and really difficult. Uh, she always sells the show as the things we need to talk about most, but talk about least. And, and I think there's some real truth to that. Favorite quarantine takeout meal? Oh, that's not even hard. Uh, Holy, Holy Basil Pho in Oakland. They have a huge menu of amazing vegan soups. And um, I get takeout from them at least once a week. This one's a little bit bigger. A little bit. This one's a little bit harder than takeout. Biggest takeaway from year one of being a dad? That the way we treat children is the way we should treat adults. That That's probably like for me the most profound lesson and the one that's influencing a lot of things quietly on this show. Like when I begin talking a lot about non-complementarity and non-violence and things like that, there is something that I am learning uh, dealing with a kid all day where the way I treat him seems in truth to be the way I should treat everybody. And it's hard. Like there is something that I'm able to do with him. Um, you know, some set of hormones I have or chemicals that run through me or whatever that allow me to treat him the way I think he wants to be treated and the way I think it is best for him to be treated. That it is very hard for me to do with adults where I get mad. I want to be treated in kind. I want to like treat them the way they're treating me. One of the things I love about, as I've begun exploring nonviolent philosophy, uh, is its emphasis on creating space for people to change. I mean, there's so much more to nonviolence than just not being violent. It is, I really like, to me, like the fundamental misconception about it, the, from what I have read, is that it works backwards from the idea that we will live in community together, that we must live in community together. And that means we need to change each other's hearts enough to be able to sustain that community together. And from that fundamental goal, it works backwards to what 
means will 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 produce that and it comes to nonviolence right and it comes to also these like self annihilating ideas like you know letting yourself be beaten or even killed in order to make your suffering the crucible for somebody else's change like it's really profound but the thing that i think helped me understand it on some level is parenting which does not require like you to get hit in the face with a policeman's baton or you know get tear gas so i'm not comparing them directly but there is with parenting, you're always kind of asking the question, or at least um, I think a lot of parents do, of like, what way of treating my child is going to create the most space for them to grow, to change, to flourish? And if they are behaving poorly, which with a, you know, with a toddler is a little bit of like a different question than with a nine-year-old or something, or much less than with a 15-year-old, but um, but from where I am, which is with a toddler, if they are behaving poorly, what you want to do is create the conditions under which they can change that, under which they can like have the space to feel better. And you recognize that they're going to behave better if they feel like loved and comforted and seen and so on, not if you start yelling back at them. And it just seems so obvious to me that this is how we should treat each other. That doesn't mean I'm able to do it every day. It doesn't mean I'm even able to do it with my partner to the extent I would like to. But it really has changed what I think the model for adult relationships should be. Um, and then there's a, a difficult practice of getting closer to that. East Coast or West Coast? Oh, of course. I mean, West Coast, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could just see, right? Like, what is my revealed preference there? Look, I, I, I love my friends on the East Coast. But I mean, the West Coast, the weather is better. Like, indisputably, unbelievably better. The coastline is more beautiful. It's just God's country out here. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to those who have to live on the East Coast and, and, and rationalize it. But yeah, the, the West Coast. The thing the East Coast has is better public transportation. We really fucked that up out here, and it's a real shame. But aside from that, yeah, the West Coast is great. And I will say, I got a, I got a, I got a, uh, an email recently where somebody was saying that they don't love some of the the California being inflected into the show. But I think the West Coast has been, I mean, it has its tremendous failures, and some of the dysfunctions of the tech industry really show that. But I think a lot of like the cultural things that have happened on the West Coast are really profound and important, and are, are, are worth taking seriously. Um, the point is not that I want the East Coast to be ignored. But the amount of media centrality that cultural and intellectual trends and people in New York get is ridiculous. And it's why Donald Trump is president on some level, right? It's why Rudy Giuliani is such an important figure in American politics, why so many former prosecutors of the Southern District of New York have an important role in the national discourse constantly, um, why so many mayors of New York were involved in the elections here. There's just like... New York's an amazing city, but it's too concentrated there. And obviously, the point is not that like if you just began to to increase the exposure of, of LA and SF, you would not be representing the country um, by any means. But I, you know, we overly concentrate the media, um, and so we are a little bit too tilted towards personalities and ideas from one part of the country. One identity that's important to you that doesn't usually come out on the show. It's important to me that doesn't usually come out on the show. I don't know. Do you have a, do you do you have one that you think is important to me that doesn't come out on the show? Huh, I don't know. I I was think I, I was actually gonna one of the things I was gonna ask you is whether your Brazilian identity um, and your immigrant identity are are strong ones. I think that does come out. I I do talk about being the son of an immigrant a lot though, um, and that's that's sort of how I how I experience my Brazilian identity. 
I think I have some aesthetic identities that are actually a little bit more my sort of Northern California parts of my consciousness that they creep in, but they are more important to who I actually am than the show would reflect. So I think the sort of balance there is probably a little bit, you know, the show is more tilted towards my political identities. Um, I'm a little bit more comfortable talking about parenting, but you know, even now where the show will sometimes touch into this, like spirituality is a bigger part of my life and spiritual exploration than it is on the show by far. And I have a sort of very Californian seeker quality to me and always have. And things like that actually matter a lot to me in my everyday life um, in ways that uh, it just doesn't feel like they're right for the show. So I've done like a couple episodes on, I think I've done two episodes on Buddhism and meditation. It's come into other episodes, but it, you know, in terms of things that are important to me in my life. Um, but I wouldn't say exactly it's an identity. Uh, it's a good question. Um, parenthood is obviously an important identity to me, but that comes up in the show. Although again, like not as much as it probably is in real life. I don't know. It's hard. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably honest about who I am here. I, th- I think that's, uh, I think that's where you want to be. Um, so speaking about what comes up on the show, I was, what are three EK show episodes, not that you think are the best, but that you've had a ton of fun doing that are just fun. And also maybe you could talk a little bit about why they're, what makes an episode just like fun to be in. That's a good question. So the one that always comes to mind as the most fun episode I've done is the NK Jemison world building episode that I just, I remember experiencing that episode in real time as a delight. I think what makes the shows more or less fun is a degree to which I am surprised and in the moment when I'm doing them. And so that's a little bit easier when it is with people I know really well. So I've done shows with um, Chris Hayes or Tanasi Coates or Molly Ball or just some folks who I've known from journalism for a long time. And I just have a comfort level with them that allows me to relax in the conversation a little bit. I'm not trying to direct it as much. Even the recent Doubt That episode was a little bit more like that. There's a, a, enough history that I could be a little more in the moment. But then the, the stuff that's really fun is often stuff that does not feel super high stakes in the way that some of the political episodes are, right? So... I really love talking to some of the artists who have been on the show, like the first Jenny O'Dell episode in particular was a lot of fun for me to do. And I just learned a lot from that. I loved, I loved the episode with Tracy K. Smith, who's the the poet, who's been a poet laureate in the United States, just about poetry. That wasn't like the biggest download monster we've ever had, but I love that episode. I had a blast doing it. I like re-listened to it as soon as it was done. Episodes that feel to me like they have something beautiful in them are really fun for me. Episodes that feel like there was some sort of interaction between me and the guests that wouldn't have happened if we weren't both here, that it, it wasn't just like I was a like like any interviewer. Those are really fun, right? That there's something about like what I brought to it and what they brought to it that created something that wouldn't have been here otherwise. You know, some people are just fun. Like it was fun doing the Hassan Minaj episode because he is fun. (laughs) Like one reason podcasts with professional comedians do so well is professional comedians are professionally fun to talk to um, and they're professionally good at talking. So like those are, you know, they're a, it's a, it's a subgenre that really works and, and for somewhat obvious reasons. So those are a couple of the ones that, that come to mind. But I think the main thing that makes an episode fun is it surprises me in where we go while it's happening. 
And it's a real conversation, not me just doing an interview. And something that Roger hears that the audience doesn't always is I, I tend to be more disappointed when I get off the show and I feel like we were never able to break out of interview. Like if I'm not able to like get the uh, guest comfortable enough or maybe have good enough questions or create the right vibe such that they never feel willing to muse and to just like be in conversation and thinking out loud. Those are the ones oftentimes are good episodes and, and people like them and they get good downloads and I get good feedback because like we're, we're crisp and sort of finding out what the person thinks. But I like the ones where it feels like we had a real conversation. Last lightning round question. Have you ever felt starstruck? On the show or in life? I would actually say on the show, I think would be a good way to ask that. Huh. Starstruck. There's so much that is happening when we do an episode on the show that I don't think there's a lot of space to be starstruck. And sort of something that journalism beats out of you is being starstruck. There are actually people who I am a little bit loath to do an episode of the show with because I don't want to know them. Um, like there are musicians like this who I love and I could get on the show. Actually, that's an identity that almost never comes out on the show. But like, I really love music and listen to a lot of it and go to a lot of music shows back when that was the thing you can do. And it never, that almost never comes out on this show. Um, and I don't want to have them on because I don't want to humanize their music for myself. I am a little starstruck by them. And I recognize that to hold that in place requires there to be some mystery between them and me. And so, you know, I don't want I don't want to break that. Um, it's important to me. You know, sometimes like I've you know we've had Obama has been on the show when he was president. Um, like we released a, a conversation I did with him on the feed. Um, I've interviewed presidential candidates, but that doesn't feel like being starstruck. Sometimes I'm very conscious of the need to do a good job there, or to use the time I have well, or to ask the questions that I feel need to be asked. But I'm not. I don't go into those starstruck. I go into those. You know, there's there can be a kind of anxiety to it, but it's not a um, there's no awe to it. I can imagine certain like spiritual leaders or ethical figures. I think I was probably the closest to starstruck I can remember being on the show is Brian Stevenson, just because I admire the work he has done so much. He sort of like seems to me to be like an almost secular saint. And so being in conversation with him like had a had a funny quality where it was like hard for me in certain ways to keep hold of like my own critical faculties because I like feel a little bit unworthy <laughs> next to him but it doesn't come from people being famous it, it comes mostly from people who I think are are like have dedicated themselves to really difficult really really good work um or musicians I really love who I refuse to ask on to the program <laughs> So as we get towards the end here, uh, lightning round is over. You survived. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you thinking about the future of the Ezra Klein show post the 2020 election? You talked about sort of this run up at the beginning where we have all these things and we know it's going to heat up. But how are you thinking about the future of the show, if at all? I don't I don't think I have a, a theory like the 2020 election. I know is not that far away. What is it? Five months, roughly. I don't think I that's like an event horizon for me right now. I don't feel like I can see past it. Like, for instance, who wins the 2020 election seems really important to me. So, you know, that's going to de decide a lot about where the show goes. Um, so I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm doing any planning on that. I've had things I would like to do with the show, and you know this, like 
around building community for a long time, but there just isn't a lot of bandwidth right now to to try some of the trickier things that I've hoped to try. I would always like is just like do a better job with the show, um, you know, and that seems to me to be sort of like the near term goal. And then, you know, the thing that we've been playing with that I've been playing with a lot in recent months has been at this time when everything is so heavy, what is the right mix on the show of guests? What is the right mix of like coronavirus and, you know, racial justice issues and how sh- how much on the news should we be and how off the news should we be? And, you know, it's funny because like I can tell you, you, the audience, um, the more on the news we are, the bigger the download numbers. But on the other hand, um, I'll often get emails asking me to do more stuff off the news or, you know, like the Madeline Miller episode was super, that was another really fun episode. Um, That was one that like, it didn't like blow away our download records, but I got feedback on that show like at a much, much higher rate than I get for, you know, some of the other ones. And so to me, like the question of the show right now is, like how to manage these moments where for like for a couple of weeks, it feels like all we can think about is like this one crisis. And then when do you come out of that? Or it's like, you know, during some coronavirus, my view was that people could kind of do two things with their head, which was like the serious part of it could think about coronavirus or they could listen to something completely wasn't coronavirus, but not something that was like in the middle of those two things, right? It had to either be like really a rest or had to be really on the news. I don't think we're there anymore, but maybe we'll go back into that. So like, that's the part of it that I'm thinking about right now is like how to, how to make sure the mix on the show is the right mix, how to make sure the conversations we're having, the ideas we're representing, um, you know, how to make sure, sure we're doing some of the difficult episodes, how to make sure we are like, there's a tension for me between who are the people I want to amplify versus like, who are some of the folks who I think people would like to hear me engage with their ideas. So all those things are, um, they're sort of where my mind is on the show right now. After 2020, I think there'll be some, some reevaluation to do depending on what happens, but it's just too hard for me. Like things have changed so much just in the past couple of months that I feel completely unable to make predictions beyond November. Um, okay. I'm going to channel my, my best as we're here. That seems like a good place to end. Well, let me ask you <laughs> the question you. we always use to end the show. <laughs> what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? How'd I do? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I hate you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, to answer it though. I know. Um, so I don't remember if I've done this in this way. So books that have influenced me. I love The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. It's just one of my favorite books. And um, maybe I've said this before on the show, maybe I have it, but I think it's one of the truly great books about how capitalism works. Beyond Ideology by Francis Lee is a book of political science that was really kind of foundational for me in thinking about the presidency and, and, and polarization. I just found that really, really helpful. And then just a book that very plausibly changed the shape of my life, um, even though it's very different than what I ultimately ended up doing. But Richard Ben Kramer's What It Takes, which is his account, his sort of new journalism account of the 1988 presidential election, is the single best piece of presidential journalism ever published. It is an amazing read even today. It's also profoundly relevant today because Biden is one of the key players in that election, and the portrait of him in that book is really interesting. But that book, I read it in college. It's just a brick. It is gigantic. But it made me want to be a political journalist. It is like one of those books that made me want to be a political journalist. And 
again, I don't do the kind of work that Kramer did. He died a couple of years ago, but it's just an amazing journalistic figure. Um, but I don't know that book. I, I love it, and I will forever recommend it to people. It is just a is a hell of a read too. And don't be intimidated by the size. It is a joy to read, like just a, an absolute joy. Ezra Klein, thank you for joining me on your own podcast. <laughs> thank you, Roche. Thank you, Roche. Thank you to all of you for sending in questions. Um, it's great to have Roche in front of the mic. Um, he does incredible and valuable work to make the show run every week. Uh, and I'm grateful to him and, and everybody else should be too. Um, thank you to our fearless producer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Mm-hmm.